Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. Uh, I have the honor today of being joined by Secretary of Labor Tom Perez. He is a, a really, really fascinating guy. He's considered one of the most activist and effective Secretary of Labor's we've had in some time. You often hear him talked about as a dark horse candidate for Hillary Clinton's vice presidential pick, uh, assuming she does win the nomination. In this episode, we talk a lot about what the Secretary of Labor actually does, because I think a lot of people don't quite understand the, the powers and influence of the office. We talk a lot about how politics works right now, how the regulatory process works right now. We talked about the minimum wage and, and, and the drivers of it, and at what point a minimum wage might get too high. We talk about inequality and how that's affecting American politics. Very fun conversation. He's a very fascinating guy. I appreciated how forthcoming he was and how, uh, how willing he was to mix it up. So I think all of you are going to enjoy it very much. Uh, before we get to the interview, as always, a couple asks for you if you are a fan of the show. The first is to share it. Please go on Facebook. Please go on Twitter. Share. Use your email. Share the show with your friends. The, the way the Ezra Klein show develops a bigger audience is because you, if you are actually liking it, if you are finding value in it, tell other people that it might be worth their time. It really means a lot to me when you take the time to do this. So, so if you have done it in the past or you are going to do it now, genuinely, thank you. My second request is to listen. If you are a fan of the show, I think you'll really like the other podcast I'm a part of, The Weeds, where I talk every week with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff about the hottest policy topics around. We get very deep into things like healthcare and inequality and economics and all the weedsy topics that so many of you love. So if you are listening to this show and you enjoy it, you should probably be listening to that one as well. The final request I have is to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. It's always funny to me. I get a lot of emails and people say, oh, to whichever intern is reading this. I actually read this myself. There's no intern with access to the email account. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback and I really appreciate the guest suggestions. A lot of the guests who have come on the show have been people I got the idea to talk to from all of you. So send me guest suggestions. I also love to know what you want to know from people, either what are the kinds of questions you wish I would ask of everybody or what are the questions you wish I would ask of someone specific you're suggesting. I take all that stuff seriously. I want the show to have value to you. And I think the way that will happen is if I am listening to you. So please email over again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All right. Without further ado, here is Secretary of Labor Tom Paris. Did you do you uh, listen to podcasts? I uh, not until I started going on them. To be honest, so you with just you. listen to the ones you're on. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> um, I mean, actually, I listened to I've listened to a number of the Axe Files because those have been interesting. Yeah, those are great. This American Life is something I've always listened to, and and that's different from what this is. But you know, I always feel like sometimes that feels like a New Yorker piece. Do you have a favorite This American Life episode? The one about Apple. 
you know, and the, the, the first the one or the retraction chain, one, the retraction one. That's I mean, both. I mean, that was remarkable. Yeah, you know, any journalist takes pride in the the journalistic integrity with which they approach the enterprise, and they got snookered. Yeah. And and they did such an amazing job, I thought, in that second episode, yeah. using something that could have been a terrible wound to their their credibility, Brand. and actually using it as brand enhancement. Yeah, no, right? absolutely. Because you came away from that recognizing the the deep seriousness and, mm-hmm. and ethics with, with which they approached the mm-hmm. program. They always get interesting stuff. Yeah, they do. So, um, something I learned about you while oh. I was researching for this interview, you were at Brown University, yep, and you were a trash collector while you were there. Correct. One that, summer. That had to be, not that many kids at Brown probably spent the summer collecting trash. I'm curious about how it felt navigating those worlds simultaneously. Well, you know, I was a Pelt Grant kid and uh, you do what you need to do to make money. And I remember that summer because it was a recession. And what I, year was I, this? This would have been the summer of 81 or 82, what happened was I worked at Sears for a number of years, and that was a pretty good job. Well, I worked in the warehouse, so I was the guy in the back room. You you, you bought a new Sears appliance, and I went and got it out for you. Mm-hmm. And then I was the guy who your brand-new Sears appliance that was a lemon, I was the person you came and yelled at. And so I learned a lot of coping mechanisms. Yeah, that had to be right. good uh, preparation yeah. for government. Absolutely. <laughs> no, uh, believe me, the customer is always right. <laughs> Even when they're wrong, they're always right. So when the recession hit, Sears wasn't hiring that summer when I came home. And so I was scrambling for jobs. And uh, so I was able to get this job working at the highway department. And and I was on the back of a trash truck. And, you know, the dignity of work is something I learned growing up in Buffalo, New York. I worked on the back of a trash truck. I worked at Sears. I worked various jobs to make ends meet. And it just taught me the value of hard work. I was a baseball umpire at night. I wanted to be a professional baseball player, but my problem was uh, my fastball had deceptive speed. You know, it was slower than you think. Right. And uh, my curveball didn't have much bite, but I loved the game. So at night I would make money umpiring after I worked either at Sears or at you know the highway department. It was good. And then at, at Brown, I worked in the dining hall and I spent a lot of time with the professional staff, you know, the full-time staff. And uh, I just feel like I connected with them because they felt a lot more like Buffalo to me sometimes than some of the students I was with. I was about to say not to get off topic, but then I recognize that this show has no topics and it's just people <laughs> rambling. So I don't have to do that. But but you said something a minute ago about the dignity of work and, and, mm-hmm. and what you learned about the dignity of work in Buffalo. And I actually wanted to stop on that concept for a minute because it always seems to me that there is friction in how America and, and particularly the American elite classes view work. On the one hand, there's a view of the dignity of work and that everybody should be working. And then on the other, I think there's a, a view that some jobs are bad jobs or terrible jobs are dirty or unpleasant and that they're just not held in, in high respect. And, and I think sometimes, particularly in policy worlds, these things actually begin to collide as you end up with things that are simultaneously about work requirements, mm-hmm. but also have a dimension of, of, of disrespect for certain forms of labor. And so I'm curious what you think of when you think of the concept dignity of work and, and, and how that informs your politics. When I think of the dignity of work, I think of the basic proposition that nobody who works a full-time job should have to live in poverty. The dignity of work is the ability to, through your hard toil, to feed your family. You know, I was 12 years old, Ezra, when my dad passed away, and my surrogate father 
was someone who was 10th grade educated. He was the smartest and wisest man I ever met. I often wonder whether there's an inverse correlation between the number of years of education and one's wisdom. And he was a teamster, and he lost his job when the economy uh, hollowed out in Buffalo in the 70s. And I remember vividly, uh, a couple blocks from my house was a, a gas station, and he would do anything to feed his family, and they ultimately lost their house and had to move. But I'll never forget, and, and it's pretty darn cold in Buffalo, he was pumping gas at the gas station at the corner of my street. And he didn't simply lose his job, he lost his dignity. And the challenge that that generation had Back then, a 10th grade education could buy you a ticket to the middle class and the dignity that comes with that work. And he didn't get the opportunity to retool. He certainly had the, the, the mental capacity to do it and the smarts and the wisdom, but he never got the opportunity to retool for the jobs of tomorrow. And as a result, he spent a lot of time going from one job to another that frankly didn't pay enough money. And so when I think of the dignity of work, I think of the ability to, to feed your family, to have a roof over your head, uh, to have a little bit of uh, money to put away for retirement, the ability to go to a restaurant once in a while. And, and those things were lost for him. And with that was um, a real loss of dignity. That's such a, I'm really actually glad I asked you this question because I, I hadn't thought about it the way you put it. That So the dignity of work is, is an outcome-based idea. It isn't just about the qualities of, of having a job. It is about what the job allows you to do, to be a provider, to, to support mm -hmm. your family. What do you think about the people who want to split those two things apart, right? There's an increasingly large and interesting debate about universal basic incomes and the idea that people should have a minimum standard of living that is above the poverty line uh, in a rich country, even if they don't work, so that they can then choose jobs and choose forms of labor, or at least choose forms of occupying their time that maybe they enjoy more. Do you follow that debate? Well, I follow that debate. Uh, the debate I follow more immediately is the debate around a minimum wage. I mean, seven and a quarter an hour, you just can't feed your family. And what both saddens and maddens me about the minimum wage debate is that the minimum wage historically has been a bipartisan issue. Every president except two since FDR has signed an increase in the minimum wage. And the minimum wage is about the dignity of work. And on the one hand, I see my conservative friends who say raising the minimum wage is a job killer. On the other hand, many of those same people say, you know what, we need entitlement reform. We need to make sure that people don't have access food stamps. You know, we need tough love. Well, you know what? The best way to reduce the ranks of food stamp recipients is to raise the minimum wage. And that issue has been studied and studied and demonstrated that if you, if you raise the minimum wage to the, let's say, the Murray uh, Bobby Scott bill that's $12 as a federal floor, you're going to take something like 3.6 million people off of food stamp rolls, and you're going to save taxpayers billions of dollars for the right reasons, because they have now, as a result of lifting their wages, they now are no longer eligible. That's the right way to do it. And so when I think about this issue, I really think about it in terms of our public policy, which is rewarding low-wage business models of, of multinational corporations at the expense of workers. So I want to come back to the minimum wage in a minute, but you did a bit of a pivot there, and I want to mm -hmm. pull you back to it because I think there's an interesting philosophical question here that I'm trying to get at, which is, is the society we want, is the society we want to structure our policy around 
one in which we have made it possible through things like the minimum wage and the earned income tax credit that as long as you work, you are able to feed your family, but you have to be working. And so that's mm -hmm. a world where maybe we add work requirements to things like food stamps and Medicaid, right? You can imagine doing that on both the demand and the supply side, having a push and a pull to that. Is the world we want to create a world in which particularly, and you hear this a lot from people who worry about automation, replacing a lot of jobs in the future, people who worry that there's just going to be fundamentally less good work to go around. Do we want to be thinking about a world where a single mother who decides to spend her time home with her child can also also live a life where she can provide for the child. I think this is a, an important central debate in, in American life, but it's not one that I think we usually speak about in a foregrounded way. I think what we need to do is revisit the social compact 2.0 for the 21st century. And through that, we need things like paid leave. I mean, right now, our female labor force participation rates are not what our counterparts, for instance, in Canada are. And, and there's a simple reason for that. Canada has invested in paid leave. We had the same labor force participation rate, female labor force participation rate as Canada in 2000, and now they're about eight points higher than us. And if we had kept pace, we'd have about five and a half million more women in the workplace. Paid leave is one aspect of that social compact that gives more choice to people, people who want to continue in the workforce, but they frankly can't afford to because of child care and paid leave policies. And so as I think about the question that you raised, I tend to think about it in the broader context of what the social compact 2.0 should look like. We're we're no longer in, you know, the world of leave it a beaver where, you know, Ward and June and Beave and Wally were all together and Ward went off to work. You know, now Ward and June are going to work and that's a good thing. And we should we should allow people to make those choices. And both our child care and our paid leave policies are really making it next to impossible. When you have people whose child care bills exceed their mortgage, that's kind of crazy. And you look at the uh, rest of the industrialized world, and they've figured this out. And that's what the president's been trying to do with a lot of his investments in child care credits, with the push toward uh, leave on leave, and, and states and local governments are doing it. But again, the social compact here hasn't caught up. That's interesting. Because what you're talking about there in labor force participation is, I think, become in some ways one of the dominant measures we looked at. Like when I got into covering economic policy and whatever it was, maybe 2005, 2003, you didn't hear a lot about labor force participation. Mm -hmm. It came up, but not that often. And now post-recession, because that's been one of the really big indicators we watch to try to understand right. what the unemployment rate, which your department so kindly tells mm -hmm. us every month and so many of us wait for anxiously, is really saying... To what degree should raising labor force participation be a primary goal for us? And, and, and the reason I ask is this. You can imagine a set of policies, including paid leave, where what you're doing is making it easier and easier and easier and more and more lucrative for people to work. And you can also do it from the other side where you add on work requirements and things and make it harder and harder and harder for people to not work. Welfare reform is another version of this. Mm -hmm. But so are things I think that are gentler, like um, child care tax credits. But do we always want to do that? On the other hand, you mentioned what this administration is doing, and Obamacare is projected to reduce, in a minor way, labor force participation because people will be able to retire earlier. They won't have to work very late into their lives in order to afford health care. And so there are times when maybe you actually don't want to be forcing people to work longer or to work if they have a child at home. I'm curious how you think about that. Is higher labor force participation always a good thing, or is it something that, that we need to treat a little bit more carefully? Well, first of all, uh, when I hear 
my conservative friends say, uh, oh, well, the, the, the unemployment rate is 5% because we've had this dramatic drop in labor force participation. I, the first thing I have to do is <laughs> bring the facts to bear in this exercise. Labor force participation, as you well know, roughly half of the decline is because of demographics. Over the last six months, it's actually come back up a bit. Last month, uh, not so. But over the last six months, it's been a pretty good trend. And I think public policy that provides choice to people is a good thing. And and the choice that paid leave and sensible child care policies provide is it puts the decision squarely in the hands of parents as to whether they want one of the, the parents to work or one of the parents to stay home. Right now, we're putting people in these unconscionable boxes, and we're frankly leaving incredible talent out of the workforce. And, and Wall Street and the Silicon Valley don't look like America because so many women are unnecessarily being sidelined as a result of our Neanderthal paid leave policy. So I think there's a lot you can do to give people choice. And when I think about your question and the frame that I look at it through, I think there are a lot of folks who who want to be dual career couples but can't because what you're making at work <laughs> is less than what you're going to pay in childcare. And they can't afford the six weeks off where they're unpaid. And so I think we need public policy that provides more choice. I think our public policy also needs to reflect that there are some people who have barriers that make it next to impossible to work. And we shouldn't punish people who have those barriers. Why do you think America has evolved to be the only developed country with such skimpy and, and frankly non-existent often paid leave, both parental leave and paid vacation often guarantees. I mean, this is something when you look at charts of developed nations, we are a genuine outlier on. We are the only one who just, right. you don't, I, I've often put up these charts and people will say, oh, you, you forgot to draw the bar for the United States. And I'll say, no, 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 there was no bar. We just are at zero and everybody right. else has some level. What is your explanation when you when you think about our political culture and our institutions? What is your explanation for why that is true for us and true for literally none of our peer group countries? Well, I think we have to step up and I think businesses have to step up. When we have the debate on the minimum wage and we see the same old tired arguments from some, uh, it's going to be a job killer. When you have the debate about paid leave, and the thing I can't understand, Ezra, I've traveled to half a dozen countries on this issue of paid leave, Australia, Germany, Canada, Switzerland, UK. And these were countries, most of which, when I traveled there, were governed by conservative ruling governments. Australia, the conservative party won their election on a platform of expanding paid leave. And they were going to finance it on a tax on something like the 2,500 or 3,000 largest So why do you companies. think we're different? And, and I had a meeting in Canada with U.S.-based multinationals who had a footprint in Canada. And they loved their paid leave there. They were using it as a recruiting tool. They would bring in someone on a contract basis. They could kick the tires on that new person, figure out whether they were going to work. And uh, all the while, the incumbent could have the, the necessary time. I think paid leave here is a when question, and I, I think we have to get more and more businesses, and to their credit, we're seeing more businesses step up, like companies like Microsoft that put into place not only paid leave policies, but paid leave policies for their supply chain. So if you want to do business with Microsoft, you need to do this. But in all too many corners of America, there's this I, me 
sort of um, ethic that I think is counterproductive to our long-term economic self-interest. It shouldn't be about I, me. It should be about we. And we all succeed when we all succeed. And that is why, you know, the president's been relentless on leave. The president's going to continue to be relentless on child care. But we're in this moment of I, me. And this is part of our broken politics is the inability at the moment to really get at the social compact 2.0 and, and what we need to make sure that uh, we can have shared prosperity. And and so I'm, I'm heartened by the number of businesses that are stepping up. I'm part of this conscious capitalism movement. And, and we had a meeting recently at the White House, a guy named Kip Tyndall, who's the CEO of the Container Store and a bunch of other CEOs, publicly traded, privately traded companies. And what we are talking about is how do you build a movement in the United States of shared prosperity, recognizing the need to build a stakeholder model of governance? A stakeholder model of governance says, Ezra, that, you know what, shareholders are best served when all stakeholders are well served. It says that we reject false choices. It's not a choice between my shareholder and my worker or my customer or my supply chain. There's an emerging body of research that clearly demonstrates that when workers have a voice at the table, when you have sensible policies of paid leave in place, it's not only good for your workers, it's good for your bottom line. And and that's why I've been relentlessly involved in this conscious capitalism movement, because we've got to make sure that the the Costco's of the world, the container stores of the world, the HEB grocery store, 85,000 strong down in Texas, whose main competition is Walmart. They're winning that competition and they're winning it on a philosophy of treating their workers well, giving them the right benefits. There is a movement growing here. And I, I really believe that you know, we, can, we can continue this momentum, but it's, it's an uphill struggle at times. It's undeniable. So I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to that movement, but I have a question about that as a political strategy. Because um, you mentioned it a couple times here. When I asked you about paid leave, you said businesses need to step up. You, you talked about the conscious capitalism movement. And I mean, many businesses in these cases have stepped up. It's the case that America does not have any federally guaranteed vacation days. Mm-hmm. But m- many American workers, I think actually most American workers, have some paid vacation days, right? Many businesses have decided to do this. And well, so, actually, I mean, low. if you are a low-income worker, you have a much higher... Uh, probability of having none of the above. Completely agreed, right? I'm saying that many businesses provide this and low-income workers are the ones who get shafted. This is often the case. But the reason I'm asking you about the conscious capitalism question, the business question, is that isn't it the government's role to create a floor? Isn't it the government's role to say that, look, there, you will have your Costco's and hopefully your, you know, your Vox Media's. We have, I think, really good uh, benefits around these questions. And you'll have, you know, some of these other companies, the container store, that, that do a really good job because they want to. Because philosophically, they agree with you that the best business model is aligned with these conscious capitalism principles. But you will have other companies that pursue an undercutting strategy, right, that just try to get their mm-hmm. costs down, accept much higher labor turnover, you know, maybe try to use very, very low-wage workforces – a lot of things can be done there. And 
it feels that if you're resting social progress on the back of conscious capitalism winning as a business strategy, that you might actually lose. And that sometimes the government has to push no. businesses to do things that it may not be the most profitable thing to do, but it's the best thing to do. And that by making everybody do it, it, it means oh. that the, the good actors don't get outcompeted by the, by the sort of more predatory Oh, I actors. mean, let me be clear. I, I couldn't agree more. What, what we need is a federal minimum wage that allows people to, who work a full-time job not to be living in poverty, not to be going to the food pantry to get their food. We need federal paid leave. And, and by the way, Federal paid leave, in my mind, is a when question. It's not an if question. Just as uh, under President Clinton, the Family Medical Leave Act came about, and that was a groundbreaking piece of legislation at the time, and we should never underestimate the amount of work that went into it. But it's not enough. The never-ending search or journey to form a more perfect union in this context is about lifting the minimum wage so that it is indeed a wage that allows everyone to live. You shouldn't have to win the geographic lottery to get access to a fair wage. Federal paid leave, child care credits that enable families to have choice. And you know the rest of the industrialized world is doing this. You are absolutely correct. When I hear the talking points from the far right about choking regulation, that's just bunk. You know, it really is. And when you look at us relative to the rest of the industrialized world, you look at the data, the U.S. versus OECD countries, we have one of the lowest minimum wages of OECD countries. Our federal paid leave, I mean, I, I used to say it's the United States and Papua New Guinea, and then somebody buttonholed me when I left the speech saying, Papua New Guinea's about to change your law. Stop dissing Papua New Guinea. So I want to apologize to everyone who's listening to this who it's has huge, roots in Papua New Guinea. We have a huge Papua New Guinea <laughs> that, That's what I heard. That's why I wanted to ex explicitly apologize, Ezra. And this is the social compact that we need. And, and I will tell you, the Affordable Care Act is part of the social compact. PAC 2.0, because you know what? My conservative friends who want to give people flexibility, guess what the Affordable Care Act does? It, it addresses that job lock that you hear about. And, and one of my best friends is an engineer. He has two kids. They each have special needs. And he worked for this engineering firm for a number of years, lived in Massachusetts, lives in Massachusetts. And after Romney Care came into place, it was a godsend for him. He quit his job. He became a consultant. He worked less hours, made more money, was able to take care of his kids and be an even better father and had health care through the state. That is a home run for my friend. And the Affordable Care Act with child care subsidies and federal paid leave and a minimum wage that is a reasonable floor, that's what the Social Compact 2.0 should be. And that's what the president's been fighting for. And I am confident that Democrats are going to continue to fight for it. So I'm going to show my ignorance here and say that I'm not familiar with the Social Compact 2.0 as a concept. So what is the Social Compact 2.0 and specifically, how does it differ from the Social Compact 1.0? Well, our, the status quo is unacceptable. You know, the status is quo, that 1.0? Yeah. The status quo is what we have now, a world in which people work 40 hours a week and get their food at the food pantry, a world in which you know, I meet a woman named Corrine in Connecticut. She's a school bus driver. She gives birth to her daughter. And two weeks later, because there is no paid leave where she's at, she brings her newborn 
onto the school bus with her and straps her in a seatbelt right behind her. And by the way, there's all these other kids who are who have the sniffles getting on right. the bus because their moms or dads had to send them to school because they couldn't afford to take the day off without pay. And uh, we can do better. I meet the Fight for 15 leader in um, Detroit, mother of three, working her tail off to make ends meet. And the night before I met her, she slept in her car with her three kids. We can do better than that. And that's the unfinished business of this recovery. We've come a long way from the days of 800,000 jobs lost a month, which is where we were when this president took office, unemployment on its way to 10 percent. Now we're at 5 percent. We've had 73, 74 months in a row of private sector job growth. We were at seven, you know, roughly seven job seekers for every job opening in the depths of the recession. Now we're down to 1.4 job seekers. And so we're moving in the right direction, but we have to we have to build the social compact 2.0 and, and, and lifting the minimum wage is part of it. Uh, paid leave but, is part but, of it. But don't tell me what's, what is part of it. Tell me what is it. Like, give me a sentence. What is the social compact 2.0? What is the deal we are making? The deal we are making is that people who work full time and want to, who work hard and play by the rules, can realize the American dream of a solid middle class life, a roof over their head, health care for their family a mortgage that's not underwater, ability to save for retirement. And that's the dignity of work. That's the dignity of that social compact. And so we need to eliminate the notion that your child care payment exceeds your mortgage payment. We need to remove from our lexicon the notion of an educational mortgage, which so many people leaving college confront today. And I think that's what this social compact 2.0 needs to be, the notion that you can build a life for yourself and your family if you work hard and play by the rules that enables you to enjoy the benefits of that dignity. So let's talk a bit about the minimum wage because you've, you've brought it up a number of times here and, and perhaps you can allay my anxiety. So the question of the minimum wage is always, I think, how high can you put mm-hmm. it up without having job dislocation, right? Without having people get fired mm-hmm. or, or, or companies right. stop hiring because they automate or, or whatever it might be. And I'm very comfortable it can be higher than it currently is. 10, 10, I don't think there's any evidence we'll see serious job loss. $12, a bit higher. I can imagine there are some areas where that could be tougher, but overall, I think it, it doesn't sound that bad. Now you have Bernie Sanders and to some degree, only to some degree, Hillary Clinton talking about 15. When I talk to economists even who are friendly to the minimum wage, they suck in their breath and say, that's, that's quite an experiment. You talk about the social compact being people who work can live a middle class life. A conservative sitting here in, in across the table from you would say, great. I'd love that too, but you raise the minimum wage up to something like 15 or in some areas even 12, and there are going to be people who can't work. They're going to be locked out of your social contract. How do you think about managing the potential dislocation? Like, How do you think about the, the state of the evidence there and what is safe to do versus what sounds good but could end up having a negative consequence? Well, again, uh, the federal minimum wage law stands for the proposition that nobody who works a full-time job should have to live in poverty. But some people and, might uh, not get full-time. I mean, what a conservative yeah. is saying is that, that getting well, a full-time job is an important premise there that could be heard on the other side of it. Well, again, we've, we've had now about two to 300 different studies that have looked at that. And every time 
you talk about the 1010 minimum wage and and the calamity howlers on the right said job killer. The current proposal that the president supports that Bobby Scott, Senator Murray, uh, Senator Warren, a bunch of folks uh, in the Senate and the House support is a $12 federal floor. At the same time, the president and I and everyone else in the administration strongly support efforts to go above that in state and local governments. So I was in Seattle April of last year when their first step toward 15 went into effect. And we see this fight for 15 movement, which people laughed at a few years ago, is taken off. And and part of the reason the fight for 15 movement is taken off, and I've said this to my Republican colleagues, is because you refuse to do anything here in Washington. And that was stupid. It was bad public policy. And by the way, when I talk to business owners and I ask them, hey, what can we do to help you? What's the thing that would most enable you to grow your business? And they say, what I need most are customers. This is Henry Ford economics, Ezra. When people don't have money in their pockets, they don't spend it. And the $12 federal floor would literally enable something like 35 million people to benefit. And uh, Do you think any jobs at all would be lost with a $12 well, it, certainly the studies that I've looked at have indicated that a $12 federal floor at the most would have minimal adverse impact and you're helping up to 35 million people. If if the new demand is that if one person has an adverse impact, even though 35 million people benefit and we can't do anything because one person might not benefit, I mean, that, then that's, that's an unreasonable bar. What but, do you think of the proposals that try to vary the minimum wage by median income in the area or other things that take into account local conditions. I mostly agree that the evidence says that 12 will not lead to large dislocation, although I don't think it would lead to nothing. I just think the positives outweigh the negatives. 15, I'm much more, I'm, I'm, I'm a Californian. And when I talk to economists about 15 in California, I come from places and have, were, have been in places in California where it'll be great and have also spent time places where I'm worried they're going to see serious job loss. And I'm always interested how we've gotten into an equilibrium around this policy where we always just create a, a dollar floor as opposed to saying, okay, tag it to half the median wage or, you know, there, there, there are things people suggest. Do you ever think about those policies and do you think they make sense? The thing that makes the most sense for me is uh, to make sure we index this because the, the, the reason hey, we've had so much, yes, the reason we've had so much challenge in this is that you get intransigence you know, opposition to raising it. And so a number of years go by, then you have this dramatic spike uh, right away because you have to catch up for the fact that right now, you know, the purchasing power of our current minimum wage is abysmally low. And so you've got to play catch up. I talk to employers all the time who are really frustrated by that fact. That's why, by the way, when you see the surveys of business leaders, you know, businesses uh, support increasing the minimum wage because they understand, first of all, the argument that they need more customers. And they understand that when you pay someone a fair wage, you reduce attrition. And one of the highest costs that businesses have is the cost of training new workers. And, and that's why Henry Ford doubled the wages of people on the assembly line over 100 years ago, because he thought people who make my cars ought to be able to buy them. And, and his attrition rates were over 300% at the time. And you can't run any business when you have a 300% plus attrition rate. So I want to zoom out a little bit here out of the policy and into your role as helping to craft certainly the regulations around it and implement it and enforcement of it. What does the Department of Labor do? 
The Department of Labor expands opportunity in a number of different ways by making sure that if you work a fair day's wage, you get a fair day's pay, by making sure that the conditions you work in are safe, by making sure that your ability to save for retirement is fortified through ensuring that the people who give you advice are looking out for your best interest. So you look at the building blocks of the middle class, we're heavily involved in all of those, making sure you have the training and skills to compete not only for the jobs of today, but the jobs of tomorrow. One of the best ways to get a raise is to upskill and have uh, the IT skills not only to compete in today's cloud, but whatever the cloud is going to morph into tomorrow to have the capacity to evolve with the changing time. So the reason I love my job is because we're in the opportunity business. But help me drill down from, mm-hmm. from mission to operation. What are your tools? Well, how many, uh, as I said about the Vatican, how many divisions do you control? <laughs> well, we have a number of tools. We have enforcement tools. So you look at wage and hour enforcement, for instance, over the last, during the Obama administration, we've recovered something like $1.6 billion in lost wages for workers. You look at our occupational safety and health or our mind safety and health, and we've enabled so many workers to make sure that uh, when they go to work in the morning, they can come home safe and sound at night using our enforcement tools. We have regulatory tools. So we just recently finalized a regulation in the retirement space. Most people who go to a retirement advisor assume that that person has a legal obligation to put their interests first, and that isn't true. And the cost of conflicted advice is in the billions of dollars. So your listeners who are in a 401k or an IRA, and you wonder, what's the role of the Department of Labor? The answer is, we have just given you an important protection so that when you go and get advice now, you can be rest assured that that person has an obligation to look out for you. So we have the regulatory tools. We have our grant-making tools. We're very involved in the workforce development space, and we use our grant-making opportunities and and abilities to um, help build what I call the skill superhighway for the 21st century. So we're investing in apprenticeship because apprenticeship is the other college, except without the debt. And uh, it's a proven pathway to the middle class for so many people. And so we're working so hard to make sure that people who lost their jobs and thought that you know, they had no future can put their talents in use, to good use through uh, those investments. And frankly, we have a lot of, um, you know, we have the bully pulpit, the convening authority, and the work that we're doing you know, again, with uh, businesses, with labor unions and others to to really build and grow this conscious capitalism movement so that we can really build an America of shared prosperity that works for everyone. I think the bully pulpit and the convenient authority is uh, critically important. So those are some of the tools in our toolbox. And that's why I love my job, because we really, there's a lot of ways in which we can touch people. You know, when my kid asks me, what'd you do this week? And I can tell them, well, we just finalized a regulation that's going to help 2 million home health workers, most of them women of color who are relying on food stamps to make ends meet, to get access to basic minimum wage and overtime protections. I call that a pretty good week. So I'm, I'm glad you love your job because now I'm going to start asking you a series of, of incredibly mundane questions about it because I'm, I'm very interested in your mm-hmm. job. And I was trying to think about this as I was preparing for this interview and, and thinking about what is a day in the life of the Secretary of Labor like? And I realized I have absolutely no idea. So, so take me through a day for you. What, what time do you wake up? Oh, I wake up at about 5.30 or 6 in the morning. That's absurd. 
That's very well, early. Five five thirty is not a reasonable time to wake up. Well, uh, it's it, there's not enough hours in a day, and, so uh, you got to get a lot of done. And what's your first meeting? Uh, my first meeting will be uh, with our senior staff in the morning, and we will uh, get an update on what's happening for the day. It's a quick check-in. It usually lasts 10 minutes or so. And, and then, then I'll go on to a meeting with uh, my immediate staff, which will last maybe 15, 20 minutes, going over, again, the important issues of the day. And then what after those two sort of table-setting mm-hmm. meetings, it sounds like, meetings where you kind of get a sense yeah. of the scope of of what's happening that day, what typically happens next? What do you spend the bulk of your time doing? What are the things that differentiate one secretary of labor from from another? Well, it's important to, I think, level set because the, the notion that there's a typical day is, sure. is probably yeah, yeah, I, I, is, I is a bit of a misnomer because I'm, I'm on the road probably uh, 30% of the time because we're out there really pushing our agenda. So we're, I'm out there. If you don't make house calls in this business, then you really can't do your job. That's interesting. And, Why is that? Because our, our job is to grow, help grow the economy, help make sure that people have the skills to compete, that businesses have the skilled workforce to grow, that people who've been victimized know that they have somebody there to help them. So I spend a lot of time with uh, business leaders, community colleges, labor leaders, talking about how do we build that trained workforce for tomorrow. So a typical week will frequently have me, uh, as I was last week, visiting a business in New York City that has figured out a way to do good and do well. So they're they're growing their business. They treat their workers well. And uh, we had a really good discussion about what the federal government can do to help them grow their business even further. How much of your role is is operational versus representational? How much of your time do you spend sort of managing the day-to-day running of the Labor Department? And how much do you spend either on the road or obviously here in Washington with Congress or, or other players taking the department's priorities and, and pushing them, representing them, making sure people understand them, right. trying to bring people and build coalitions for your side? Sure. Well, we it's certainly both. I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of as Labor Secretary is uh, when I got to the Department of Labor, we were actually one of the lowest agencies in terms of employee satisfaction. And for the last two years, our uh, employee satisfaction has gone up more than any other agency. So now we're in the top third as opposed to being near the bottom. And the reason that's so important for me is because, number one, I think the Department of Labor ought to set the tone of uh, one of the best places to work in the federal government. And secondly, we've got a lot of work to do, and we're not going to be getting major infusions of resources in in the world of divided government. And so we've got to make sure that all of our workers are engaged and productive and have the tools they need to compete. And so I do spend a, a fair amount of time on those issues, although at the same time, our deputy secretary, Chris Liu, uh, does a, a super job of being effectively the COO of the Department of Labor. And so I'm, I'm you know frequently at the White House talking about our regulatory agenda or talking about the president's broader economic agenda. I'm I'm proud to be part of of that team. And we talk a lot about what we can do in the retirement space. So the president was the one who announced our initial efforts to regulate in the retirement space. When we announced the overtime rule and the home health rule, those were things that the president announced because he understood that these are part of the broader effort to expand opportunity in America. So my day is uh, a lot about supporting the broader administration initiatives to build an economy that works for everyone, making sure that we have the enforcement tools to carry out our critical law enforcement functions, 
working with businesses and, and, and administration colleagues. I do a lot of work with my fellow cabinet secretaries because our issues overlap. What three or four changes do you attribute the, the rise in labor employee satisfaction to? I think it's important to listen. The most important thing uh, that I've always appreciated everywhere I worked was when uh, the folks to whom I reported listened to me. And I'm, I'm not embarrassed, Ezra, to acknowledge that I've seldom had an original idea in my life, but I do pride myself on listening to folks. And so from the outset of my tenure, we had a series of conversations with our employees. Uh, what can we do to make your work experience as fulfilling as possible. So for instance, a number of people said, I'd like the opportunity. I work in the wage and hour division. I'd love to see what it's like to work in the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And so we've set up on a pilot basis, and now we've made it permanent because it was so popular, an opportunity to do details, to go from one place to another. And actually, some of the times people like it so much that they become a permanent employee somewhere else. And when they don't, that's just as good because they come back to their agency refreshed with new ideas. A number of people express concerns about the need for workplace flexibilities. And so we now have in place a new policy for workplace flexibility so that people can be both a good parent and a good employee and they don't have to feel like they have to choose one or the other. So I, I think listening and then acting is, is uh, it, it's not rocket science, but it's really a key to success and building a culture of collaboration and innovation. And, and in, on Capitol Hill, in, in a federal agency, when you have this gotcha oversight context, which is all too frequently the case, it's hard for folks to want to take risk because if it doesn't work, they feel like they're going to be exploited, frankly. And and so we want to set a tone that, you know what, we need to take educated risk in order to carry out our mission. And so I try to set a tone of, you know, we have your back. So one thing that the Labor Department is exceptionally involved in is organized labor and organized labor's role in the economy. And over the last 30 or 40 years, the density of unionization in this country has fallen really dramatically. I'm curious how you see that changing in the next 10 or 20. Do you think mm -hmm. that there are conditions for a comeback in organized labor? Or do you think that it is becoming something the Labor Department needs to think about how to deal with a world or particularly in the private sector where becoming, we become post-unionization? Well, I certainly, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I saw in Buffalo, New York, the critical importance of the labor movement. And I firmly believe, and I work for Senator Kennedy, who I know firmly believed that the health of the middle class and the health of the labor movement are inextricably intertwined. When unions succeed, America succeeds. And when unions succeed, the middle class succeeds. And, and when you look at the inequality that has people angst-ridden right now, or many people angst-ridden, there was a recent study, I think, that was published at the Center for American Progress that showed that roughly a third of the inequality that we're seeing right now is, is a result of the decline in, in union density. And when workers don't have a voice, it's harder to advocate for things like paid leave, for, for reasonable raises, for access to health insurance, things of that nature. And let's face it and, and let's acknowledge it. There's an undeniable and well-orchestrated assault on the labor movement right now. And it's well-funded. The case that just went to the Supreme Court, it, it deadlocked four to four after Justice Scalia passed away. But that, that was a frontal assault on public sector 
bargaining and public sector labor unions, and it was led by the far right. There's no secret about that. It really embodies, in my perspective, everything that's wrong with the current situation right now. Because my parents taught me, Ezra, that you know if you blow out your neighbor's candle, it doesn't make your candle shine any brighter. And what these assaults on the labor movement are about is, oh, uh, that teacher has uh, a pension and you don't. So the response is, let's make sure that teacher doesn't have a pension. Well, my response to that is, let's make sure that your neighbor who doesn't have a pension can get access to a pension so that we can build an America of shared prosperity. So I spent a lot of time in this job, and the president held a summit on Worker Voice to really highlight the challenges that we are confronting moving forward. And I'm looking and working with a number of not just traditional labor movement uh, leaders, but we're also working with some remarkably innovative folks who are organizing childcare workers, who are organizing people in the healthcare industry, who are organizing the, the Domestic Workers Alliance, taxi cab workers in New York City. And what we're doing is working with them to figure out what are the new models in addition to traditional collective bargaining, which I'm a strong believer in, that we can use to give voice to workers? How can we take technological tools? And, and we've seen through uh, coworker.org, making use of technology to organize baristas who have never met each other, but have the same issues involving scheduling and wages and things of that nature. So there's a lot of excitement going on there, but there's an undeniable headwind. And, and, and the role of the government is to make sure we're using every tool in our toolkit, including but not limited to our regulatory authorities and our our bully pulpit to assist. Do you think we're moving towards a space, particularly as service sector workers are structured in ways where they become harder to organize than traditional workers who are all at one factory or all at a discrete number of factories in a world where you have things like Uber or freelance writers, et cetera, that it's, it's trickier. Do you think that that we are seeing the construction of alternative kinds of worker associations? Or do you think that labor is going to figure out a way to put these people in more traditional union structures? Or do you think that this workforce might become more atomized as the economy becomes more service sector dependent? Well, I think we're seeing a lot of exciting innovation, both in the organizing space, in the traditional organizing space, and in organizations like the Domestic Workers Alliance, the Restaurant Opportunity Coalition, other nonprofits that are emerging and, and aligning and working collaboratively with organized labor. Uh, I was at the AFSME annual conference a little over a year ago, and and they understand, and as does SEIU, the existential threats here. And you actually look at the number of people they're signing up, it's going up because workers understand we're taking it on the chin. And the collective power of we is a remarkable force. It's not only a remarkable force that brought the organizers in Selma together around the Voting Rights Act. It's a remarkable force that brings workers together. And more and more workers understand that the other side wants to make it harder for us to be we. And when it's just me, I don't have the leverage. And so we see it in the numbers, AFSCME, SEIU. We see it through campaigns that uh, the Domestic Workers Alliance and others, and I've visited them. And they're again, they're working more and more together with organized labor. The, the Fight for 15 movement is a remarkable success story that uh, and we now have almost 20 percent of the U.S. population is living in a state or locality 
that is under the umbrella of uh, a $15 minimum wage. And, and that is, again, the collective power of we. And the fight for 15 movement is more than just a number. It's, it's really the fight for dignity. It's the fight for scheduling. It's the fight for all these other issues. What are other ways for workers to develop some of the voice that comes from that we? And to give a little bit more context to this question, I think a lot about that chart that makes the rounds nowadays about how labor share of income has really fallen in recent years. And, and when I look at that chart, I see workers losing leverage to get more of the profits from their employers because mm-hmm. corporate profits have largely been been pretty good. What do you think are, are the most promising avenues for restoring that leverage? Right. Well, first of all, federal, we, you know, we've had right, a yes. lengthy conversation about building the social compact 2.0 at a federal level. Right, but you so think that's about a worker thing. at the 50%. Like, sure. like, let's think of a worker who's now is like not a low-income worker, but is you know the 50, at the a median Amer- a median worker. Like, what what, what can they? Well, one thing we're trying to do for them, and and it's a very timely question, is the uh, issue of overtime. There are so many people in this country working 70 hours a week and making about $30,000 or $25,000. Why? Because in 2004, the Bush administration, and they were within their rights. This is a good example of elections have consequences. They changed the rules under the Fair Labor Standards Act to determine when somebody is overtime eligible as opposed to exempt from the overtime requirements. And what they did in a nutshell, Ezra, was they took all the leverage that workers had and gave it to employers. And so you can work 60, 70 hours a week, 99% of your work is uh, stock and shelves, nothing that we would Mm -hmm. call management work, 99% of that, but you are an exempt manager. And, and when I was growing up in Buffalo, Ezra, if one of my friend's parents was a manager, that meant they were in the middle class. And that's not true anymore. I met, a, I met one of these managers in my office one day, and I said, when was the last time you had a vacation? And he looked at me and just smirked and said, vacation? Vacation is a 40-hour week for me. And so what we're doing with this overtime rule pursuant to the president's direction is trying to create a level playing field and bring it back to both the letter and spirit of what the Fair Labor Standards Act says, because right now there are literally thousands and thousands of workers who are working 20 hours a week effectively for free. And, and, and we've got to restore leverage, to use your term. We've got to restore leverage to these folks who used to be able to feed their family But now they don't see their family because they're opening the place, they're closing the place, they're doing all that work, but 20 hours of it is is for free, and that's just not fair. So that's one example of a leverage point that we have at the Department of Labor to help workers. Is there a way to give them more leverage? I mean, so so what you're talking about here, a little bit similar to the minimum wage, is that there are certain powers the federal government has where it can come in and say, nope, you're going to do it this way. And the federal government has tremendous leverage, right? It's tremendous power Mm -hmm. when it can act. Are there things the Labor Department or the government more broadly can do to give individual workers just more leverage in their day-to-day jobs to use it in in the ways they see fit? Well, one thing that we did recently that helps workers in uh, jobs is to make sure that during union organizing campaigns, they understand the information that's coming at them. And uh, there is a whole world of consultants who are out there who, in fact, what they do is they advise employers on how to 
beat back union organizing efforts. And under the LMRDA, the Labor Management Reporting Disclosure Act, the law calls for disclosure when you have hired one of these union-busting consultants. And there was a loophole that employers were driving a Mack truck through so that you're a worker, you're trying to figure out whether to join a union, and you get all this information. And what we're saying in the new rule that we just finalized a couple months ago is you've got to disclose who you hired and how much you paid them. Because, you know, I'm a firm believer that if you have disclosure and you can put sunshine out there, it can be a disinfectant. And so the purpose of the LMRDA, the Labor Management Reporting Disclosure Act, is to level the playing field. And ironically, the current status quo, unions, when they're part of the organizing campaign, have significantly greater reporting requirements than the company. And so we're simply saying we need to create a level playing field here. And, and, and again, the purpose of this is to help people make informed judgments because people are scared to death oftentimes, because they get this parade of horribles. If you join this union, you're going to lose your job and you're going to lose your benefits and this and that. And, and little did they know, you know, the company just paid $2 million on the consultant that's going to tell them all these horrific things. So we're thinking of everything we can do to create a level playing field, because I really do believe that a big part of our challenge today of inequality is the issue of leverage. Workers need to have a seat at the table. And as, as, as my friend Lee Saunders of Ask Me says, you know, if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. And uh, too many workers have been on the menu because they haven't had a meaningful seat at the table. So I know you've got some constraints on your time today. I want to be respectful sure. of that. So, so let me move to some questions that, that we ask guests here, here sure. as, we, as we close out. What is something that you believe is true that most people believe is false? Well, I certainly uh, believe that we've made a remarkable amount of uh, progress coming out of the uh, Great Recession. Do you think, um, do you think most people believe that is I false? I think there is a – well, if you, if you uh, poll the Republicans in this country right now, I mean, it's important to remember that – and I appreciate Mitch McConnell's candor. I mean, he said, I want this president to be a one-term president. And so there has been a relentless, relentless onslaught of misinformation about what's happening. And, and it's, you know, I, I, I refer to the Eeyore caucus, uh, you know, from uh, Winnie the Pooh. You know, Eeyore's mother was uh, Debbie Downer. And, uh, you know, the if you I did gave, not know that was where Debbie Downer uh, came from. Well, it wasn't, but I'm making that one up. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Eeyore's metaphorical mother Got was it, okay. Debbie Downer. And, I mean, if you administered truth serum, to the main opponents of this, uh, President Obama, and said, if I told you that on January the 1st, 2016, in the beginning of a presidential election cycle coming up, that you, the Republicans, were in charge and you would now have brought the unemployment rate down to 5% and there would be 73 months in a row of private sector job growth to the tune of 14 Point five million jobs, and you'd have a, a weekly unemployment claims under three hundred thousand when they used to be over six hundred thousand. Would you take that? They would all say in a New York minute. But because this president has presided over this recovery, and because they haven't done squat for it, there's this relentless array of misinformation, and and that's unfortunate, and that and that's unconscionable, and it's undeniably frustrating. Because you know what? 
America continues to be the greatest nation in the earth because we have put our values in action, and that's what makes us great. And so I confess, I'm I'm frustrated when I uh, when I hear the continued uh, misinformation out there. So then, speaking of Republicans, who are some writers you don't agree with, but you read regularly? Uh, I read David Brooks from the New York yeah. Times. I read uh, Russ uh, Doutat from the New York Times. I read Michael Gerson from the the Post. Those would probably be three that uh, I more often than not don't agree with, but I sometimes do agree with and always respect the perspective that they bring. I mean, one of the challenges that we have and we need to move forward on in this country is uh, to not talk past each other. And I, I see that all too frequently. I mean, when, when we just did this um, conflict of interest rule in the retirement space, Ezra, one of the things I was most proud of is at the end of the day, uh, and it was a controversial rule. Uh, I mean, the industry spent tens of millions of dollars to scuttle it. Um, in the end of the day, if you look at the releases from the majority of folks in, in the industry, what they said was the Department of Labor listened. And that's why we were able to forge a consensus among so many, because it's important to listen and, and to go at the, whether it's the regulatory process or the enforcement process, you know, with a, a very inclusive approach and, and a healthy dose of humility. And, and those two things are often lacking. Uh, you know, we too frequently folks retire to their Fox News or MSNBC corners and, and sell them to the Twain meet. And so I've tried to make sure that we don't do that. And, and I think you know, our work that we were able to do recently in the uh, conflict of interest space, and you know, I was deployed by the president a year ago to go out to the West Coast when there was a ports dispute, and it was costing the economy um, billion dollars a day. It was a big, significant issue. And I, I you know, tried to get out there and just do some listening and, and uh, recognize that we, um, we may disagree on things, but we've got to figure out consensus and compromise. As, as the president said at the Howard University commencement, you know, folks, it's not anger alone is not enough. You've got to have a strategy to improve the country. And I think part of the strategy involves listening and, and recognizing what Ted Kennedy taught me, which is that idealism and pragmatism are not mutually exclusive and principled compromise is not a dirty word. And what are three books you've read that influenced you that you think other people should read? Boys on the Boat would be one. It's a great story, not of a, just a crew team in, uh, I think it was University of Washington, 1936, Olympic gold medalists, who uh, it's a story of uh, what it means to be a team, what it means to overcome incredible adversity. That was a great book. Malcolm Gladwell, Dave and Goliath. I enjoyed reading that because... Uh, it's the story of uh, folks who've also overcome a lot of different adversity. There's there's one passage in there that kind of resonated with me, Ezra, because um, it was a story of a lot of folks who did some interesting and um, uh, exciting things later in life. And, and what they all had in common is when they were young, they had some pretty significant personal challenges in their lives, you know, parents dying and and things that are unfortunate. And and when I was 12, my dad died. My mom was sick before my dad died. If you'd asked me who was going to die first in 1974, I would have said my mom. But after she had her surgery, then uh, she was getting better. And then my dad passed away. And then after he passed away, then a couple, about a month later, my mom got sick again. So that was kind of a rough year. And, and as I was reading that book, I had a few flashbacks because I feel like the fierce urgency of now with which I approach my life 
is in no small measure a function of my experience when I was 12 years old, where, you know, my life was turned upside down. And I didn't know when I started eighth grade that year whether I would have any parents alive. And so I remember kind of thinking, well, uh, you should never take anything for granted. And if you saw my team now and ask them, you know, tell me about some characteristics of Tom, one thing they would say is... uh, he is um, impatient, <laughs> and and I'm impatient because I I never know when the ticket's going to get punched, so to speak. And so I I try to live with that fierce urgency of now. And I guess a uh, I guess a final book I remember reading um, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, No Ordinary Time, which was a biography of uh, the Roosevelts, and it has a lot of relevance to today because it's really about you know, governance in. Uh, in tough times. And, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt is just a remarkable figure. And, and I've been surrounded in my life by a lot of strong women. And so I'm kind of attracted to biographies of strong women, whether it's uh, Frances Perkins, whose biography I read, and she's the gold standard for all labor secretaries, and her portrait hangs behind my office. Or uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who uh, did so much to build an America that was fair. So... Those are probably the three books that I think about a lot. Secretary Tom Perez, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Ezra. Great to have you. Thank you to Tom Perez. Uh, that was a really fascinating discussion. Really appreciate him being on the show. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. We'll see you next week.